Here we go, here we go, here we go. Brian, Alex, Nick, coming to you again this week. Your screen ain't broke. We're just that pretty. Hey. <laughs> Episode three of the Grassy Know, the entire gang sits down with Gary Turner, doctoral student at the University of Louisville in Exoplanet Studies and uh, current professor of physics and astronomy at BCTC in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. Shout out to the homeland. Sits down with us this week to discuss basically anything that's on Brown's mind. So, uh, <laughs> once you find out, I was not near the intellect level needed to take part in this conversation, but nonetheless, it was an extremely educational uh, session, and what do you want to say, Brian? Um, first off, I just want to thank Gary for coming on. Um, you are amazingly smart, and it was awesome. It's We talk about space, we talk about search for extraterrestrial life exoplanets um get some flat other earth. flat earth for all you flat earthers brad, brad stanley um <laughs> so something really quick before you know before this episode we filmed or before we filmed this episode we had a a twitter post um you guys really need to work on reading context clues um <laughs> i don't understand uh, I don't know if the Picard meme or the Picard gift just was too much. I don't know. Um, but Brad Stanley, you get your question answered. Um, yeah, uh, it's super interesting. We talk aliens, planet space. It's a lot of fun. Um, enjoy it. The grassy knoll. We're getting in the weeds. Um so what exactly do you do, Gary? So I teach uh, at Big Sandy Community and Technical College in Prestonsburg. Uh, um, and I'm the, the physics and astronomy guy there. Uh, and uh, up here in Louisville, I am a graduate student working on my PhD in astrophysics. Hmm. Um and that's that's what I'm doing with the exoplanet research that I was uh, mentioning uh, in the text. So uh, I study. Um, I actually haven't formally started my research yet, but um, I've been dipping my toes into it. And this is along the lines of what I did with my master's degree. Uh, but it's exoplanet research. So basically, we're looking for planets uh, outside of our solar system uh, around other stars. And um, there's a few different uh, missions uh, from NASA. Uh, the current one is called the TESS mission, and that's the data that I'm going to be uh, mainly working with, um, the, the data from uh, TESS itself, from, from the NASA pipeline, uh, as well as doing ground-based follow-up on select targets. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, we're basically just looking for planets around other stars. Um, outside of our solar system. And uh, it's a pretty young branch of astronomy. Uh, yeah. First one was discovered in 1992. Um, so, you know, in terms of people have been looking at the stars for thousands of years, you know, and we've always had this question, right? Are we alone? And we don't still don't know the answer to that question yet. What do you but, think? Uh, no. Definitely I mean, yeah, not. Definitely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I agree there. 
I, I mean, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why, right? So if you want your first kind of mind-bending fact. Here we go. Yeah, let's see. So, so the predecessor to the Kepler, or to the test mission was called the test, or Kepler mission. I'm getting myself confused here. Uh, so the Kepler satellite was launched by NASA in 2009, and it, its purpose was to monitor 150,000 stars, right? So they just pointed this satellite section of the way this works. But the technique that we use and that these uh, NASA satellites use is called the transit technique. And so this basically looks for planets crossing in front of their host star. And if a planet does so and it's in our line of sight, then the star will dim. And if the star dims periodically, right, if, if it's cyclic, in other words, if it does so very regularly, then that's uh, good evidence that there is indeed a planet there. So from the Kepler mission, which ran from 2009 to 2013, if I'm not mistaken, um, the main mission ran for, for those years, with the planets that they found, uh, a few thousand planets alone came out of that mission, and when you run the statistics, right, you say, okay, how many stars were we looking at? How many planets did we find? How many planets did we likely miss because they were not favorably aligned, since this has to be a line of sight issue? And you can get an estimate of how many planets were in your field of view. So our, our Milky Way galaxy has right around 100 to 200 billion stars in it alone. And the estimates from the Kepler data were that we can have one to two planets per star in our galaxy. We know of a hundred billion galaxies. So if our galaxy is typical, then you have a hundred billion galaxies, each with a hundred billion stars, each with one to two planets. Now, a lot of these planets are, you know, uninhabitable. They're either gas giants or they don't have atmospheres or, you know, things of that nature. Uh, but when you're talking about a hundred billion, hundred billion potential planets, I'd say the odds that some of them are inhabitable is pretty good. Yeah. So yeah. to me, the odds, no, we're well, life, life may be rare, but I don't think we're it's that rare. So let me ask you this, as far as like within our own solar system, you know, mm -hmm. we have like Europa is a pretty right. big candidate. Yeah. Yes, um, absolutely. Do you, do you think like, um, you know, under that ice sheet, um, since the moon, when it when it goes around, it actually expands and contracts. So the core right. is there's right. all, really all we for as far as life as we know it, all we need right. is like an energy source and water. Right. Um, yeah. And that would have both under that ice that, you know, this layer of ice. Yeah. Do you think that that's a pretty good candidate? And there's also the other moons in that, you know. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Europa is my, if I were in charge of exploring life in the universe, Europa would be my top target yeah. based on potential. Yeah. Right? Mars, uh, yeah. Mars is more practical <laughs> because yeah. we can get to the surface of Mars a little more easily. Um, but Mars has a lot of challenges itself, right? Not a lot of people realize this, but Mars has killed about half of the missions that we've sent to it. For whatever reason, um, it's it's a pretty difficult planet to explore. Um, so just a little bit of background, because you mentioned uh, the, the the scientific term for what you mentioned is tidal flexing, right? Oh, okay. So so what happens with Europa um, is Europa is not in a completely circular orbit. Very few orbits are completely circular. So 
when Europa is closer to Jupiter, it feels the tidal pull a little more strongly, and that's where you get a lot of the stronger gravitational pull. And then as the uh, moon moves a little bit further away, it feels less. So you're getting stretched and compressed at different rates when you move around in your orbit, if you're on Europa. And so that particularly affects both the uh, surface, the surface can flex, um, just like our surface flexes with, uh, in reaction to the moon, uh, our moon. Um, but it also causes tidal contractions in the core as well. So it's that uh, it's because the gravity is not constant. It's constantly shifting either closer or further away from Jupiter. And that gravitational interaction causes heat in the core of Europa. So we think there's an internal heat source, as you mentioned, um, but the surface is ice. Mm. Now, the surface is pretty thick, and that's one of the... Um, you know, uh, potential difficulties with, with doing it at Europa would be drilling through all that ice. Um, but I, I can't remember the exact thickness, but it's something like 10 kilometers thick. Yeah, right? it's, I, think, like I think that's what it is, yeah. So it's a pretty thick sheet of ice, but underneath that, right? So if the, if the core is as hot as we think it is, it's pr pretty near boiling. So there has to be that temperature gradient, right? So yeah. if it's boiling at the, at the core frozen at the surface, then there's got to be some really nice temperatures there in between somewhere where at least life as we would know it, life in our oceans could exist. Um, and as you know, the, the tantalizing thing is anywhere you go on earth that you find water, you know, you can take a cup and you just yeah. some, some stuff up, you'll find microbes, if not little tiny tadpoles, fishes, whatever, right? You'll at least find microbes. So the fact that Europa's ice is somewhat salty, um, there's some chemistry there. And, you know, if, if the uh, water near the core is heated through those thermal vents, man, it's tantalizing, right? Yeah. It, it's absolutely tantalizing to think that uh, life could could exist there. Now there there are other candidates. Um, Isn't Ganymede? Doesn't Ganymede yeah, have yeah, the spouts yeah, that come yeah. out? Um, and actually, two moons of Saturn are of particular interest as well. Uh, there's a moon called uh, Enceladus, and um, it's another moon that has some tidal flexing to it. It has an ice um, surface like Europa. And we actually have seen some of the geysers coming off yeah. of Enceladus. And um, so we know that there is liquid water down there. Uh, we know there's liquid water under, underneath the surface. One of my favorite targets um, would be uh, Saturn's moon Titan, right? So Titan is the only moon in the solar system that has an appreciable atmosphere, right? So uh, this atmosphere is, uh, if I remember correctly, I think the surface pressure is 1.4 times ours. Um, so it's, it's a smaller body than the Earth, but there's so much atmosphere. Um, and what the chemistry of the atmosphere is, uh, what the atmosphere is made out of, uh, it's very, very dense. And it has liquid on the surface in the form of hydrocarbons like methane and uh, ethane. So, you know, it's not liquid water, but it has chemistry, it has mm -hmm. geology, it has climate, it has weather, 
it has storms, it has precipitation, you know, so it has all these geological cycles um, with some pretty complex, you know, uh, interactions between the, the geology and the climate. So, again, tantalizing, right? So you, you couple those targets, you know, Europa, Ganymede, Enceladus, Titan, and then you also look at, you know, like Mars, where we're finding, you know, salty water. We're finding that there's possibly some oceans underneath the surface. That's what I was going to ask about, if you thought that there would be life under the surface of Mars. And, and, and so even if they don't have an internal heat source, they have some heat that's still left over from, you know, a few billion years ago. So, man, if you find liquid water, it's, it's so tantalizing, right? Yeah. It's, it is so tantalizing. I can't promise you that we are, you know, or that we will find microbes um, anywhere in the solar system. If we do, I, I would bet that it would be um, Mars, Europa, Ganymede, Enceladus, or Titan. I would, I would bet money if we find microbes or or um, living, then it would likely come from one of those. Um, to give some context, right? So in the field of exoplanets, one of the um, regions of interest that we uh, judge the habitability of a planet on is called the habitability zone. And so this is the region around a star where liquid water could exist on the surface of a planet, all else being equal, right? Yeah. And um, so what I mean by that is in our solar system, Actually, there's three planets in the habitable zone, Venus, Earth, and Mars. So Venus is on the inner cusp, and Earth is darn near right in the middle, and then Mars is uh, just on the outer edge, right? Um, obviously, Venus is not a good candidate due to the atmosphere and the um, you know heat that it retains. Uh, it's, you know... You can instantly cook a chicken if you were to take it to the surface of Venus. Just with the uh, surface pressure and the temperature, um, if you were to toss a chicken out of your spacecraft, it would instantly be cooked. Um, and you with it for opening the door, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, wouldn't be the best of times. But you know, if if the atmosphere on Venus weren't so harsh. If it weren't so inhospitable, uh, liquid water could exist on Venus if it had a thick enough atmosphere to ironically shield it from, uh, you know, uh, sublimation and um, evaporation. If, if it had an atmosphere that could help regulate its temperature a little bit uh, better than it does now. Um, so when we look at these exoplanets, this is one of the things that we judge um you know, the, the quality of a discovery, right? Any exoplanet discovery is exciting for people in my field, but for the press releases for the public, right? What are your tax dollars going toward? What are the major discoveries? Why should we keep doing this? Uh, the habitability zone is a great selling point, right? So, like I said, Kepler has found several thousand potential planets. A lot of them are still being vetted. Um, but once once the majority of those are confirmed, we'll we'll, we'll have you know seven or eight thousand total exoplanets in our catalog. 
uh, Tess. So the difference between Tess and Kepler, as I said, Kepler is just just stared at one patch of the sky through its main mission. Um, after uh, 2013, it had a couple of malfunctions of its pointing systems, and so then the the mission changed, and they did more things with it other than just um, uh, exoplanet hunting. Um, but through those two missions, K1 and K2, six or 7,000 objects of interest were found. Wow. Jeez. I'm not sure off wow. the top of any of those were confirmed. TESS, on the other hand, which stands for the Transiting Exoplanet Satellite Survey, um, actually is going to be an all-sky survey. So it's looking at one patch of sky per month, and then it moves to a new patch of sky. Mm. And then over the course of two years it will have um, observed over 85% of our total night sky. Uh, and so it's going to have observed well over 200,000 stars um, that are specifically identified for it. It has over 2 million stars in its field of view. So what that means is that there are other people who are also looking at these images um, because they're tax-funded, uh, once they're processed initially by the uh, scientists on the main team, NASA has to release these to the public. So if you guys want to do some amateur astronomy work and potentially get a paper published, if you discover something funny that no one else has seen, cool. you, can go to, you can go to NASA's website and download this stuff, right? You can download Hubble images yeah, uh, because it's all taxpayer-funded. So... Um, is observing well over 2 million stars in its field of view. 200,000 were specifically chosen uh, as stars of interest for the mission, but, you know, 2 million stars. And you compare this, right, with where astronomy was less than 100 years ago. Like, uh, for example, when Pluto was discovered, right, people literally just stood at a telescope night after night with these glass plates trying to take these pictures, which was a very arduous task. Very difficult, you know. Um, it was not exciting and it was not glorious <laughs> at all. Uh, and you know, you you look at you know just a few stars per night. And now with these automated missions, with with the space-based missions, and with remote observing, uh, you know, uh, most telescopes now are remote observed. So I can, if I have the proper credentials and I have the login information, I can control a telescope in Arizona tonight, right? That's cool. And uh, um, I don't have to leave my bed, right? I can just put it on auto routine, check the weather, make sure everything's going to be all right, and then I can go take a nap while the telescope does all the work and then download the data in the morning and do astronomy like an 8 to 5 job as opposed to a 5 to 8 job. Uh, but... So, you know, with two million stars that Tess is observing, there's going to be stuff coming out of there along with the exoplanets that I can't I, I can't even tell you what they're going to discover, right? I can't even anticipate it uh, just because some of that stuff is going to be so mind-blowingly new, um, you know. So who knows what's going to come out of this along with these planets? Um, uh, who knows? So I... <laughs> I, I don't. I can't even tell you. How do they set the, the duration? So you mentioned Kepler was from 09 to 13. Well, Tess, is it a predetermined 
Tom Slaughter, is it just until... Yeah, yeah. So Kepler was actually supposed to go longer than it did. So what what happened was, um, you know, to keep yourself oriented in space, right? So it's a satellite, so it's orbiting the Earth, but it's trying to stay pointed at one patch of sky. So as you're moving around in your orbit, you need to be able to stay focused on that one patch. And so they have three gyroscopes, one for each direction. And those gyroscopes work together to keep you pointed while your spacecraft is in motion. And they lost two of those uh, reaction wheels. They're, they're called reaction wheels. And um, they were able to keep it pointed okay with one. But then after the first one failed, um, uh, it was just a few months, I believe. It was either a few months or just a year afterward. Uh, that a second reaction wheel failed and they couldn't point it anymore. So what they then ended up doing, it was really clever. The telescope was just uh, kind of drifting, but in uh, a specific plane, in the plane of its orbit. And so then they just like took images as it was sweeping out along this plane. It severely limited its field of view. You know, it couldn't look up, it couldn't look down, it couldn't do anything. But we could get images while it was still still moving around. And that was what they called a K2 mission. And it's it, it still found so planets and some other things. Um, but the mission itself, if I remember right, was supposed to, if, if the mechanics had not gone out, I want to say it was supposed to go up until about 2016. I want to say it was 2009 to 16 was the was the planned mission. So TESS is a two-year mission, right? Um, it's originally planned for 2019 and 2020. Um, but the spacecraft is in really good condition and as long as um you know nothing major fails on it there's no reason not to keep doing it as long as nasa can get the funding to keep uh you know the engineers you know writing the code and communicating with the telescope and downloading the data and those kinds of things um for context right hubble was not supposed to last this long um hubble's you know over 25 years now almost 30 years now and it was supposed to be a five-year mission. Are we getting a new telescope? I forget what it's. Yeah, the James Webb. James James Webb, yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, when, when Hubble, then it had the optics problems that it had, you know, and everybody's like, oh, dear God, you know, what are we going to do? And they were able to get it fixed. Um, and once it was fixed in 1995, you know, astronomers were optimistic, uh, and, they, and they would have been happy if we would have gotten, you know, five, ten years out of it. And here we are almost 30 years later, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it, it's it, it's a crapshoot, right? Sometimes you get a Hubble that lasts a whole lot longer than it was supposed to, and sometimes reaction wheels go and you can't do anything about it, right? Um, yeah, the James Webb, there you go. Yeah, that's going to be uh, I'm, I'm excited. I like Hubble. I like looking at Hubble stuff anyway. Um, for context, right? So Hubble's mirror uh, was only 90 inches across. Yeah. And if I remember right, James Webb is something like six meters, like 18 or something like that. 18 that's feet. awesome. Yeah. I mean... Um, the 
lake is is just absolutely mind-boggling right um and um yeah so what do you think about like do you think that we will find microbial life before we find intelligent life <laughs> i i do i i yeah, I, I do too. so unless we've already found them that's that's exactly what I was about to say, right? So you know the whole ancient aliens thing, right? I'm not saying it was aliens, yeah, but it was aliens, right? Yeah. Um, so I I'm not a big alien conspiracy theorist, right? Oh, really? um, when when people say, oh, you know, well, the because of the alignments of the pyramids or these ancient, you know, yeah, uh, burial grounds or Stonehenge or whatnot, you know, it's like. I think it does a great disservice to our intellectual ancestors and how ingenious they were and the mathematics and the engineering they were able to come up with um, to build the pyramids or, you know, construct Stonehenge and things like that. So uh, doubtless they have astronomical importance, right? It's, it's very doubtless that they have astronomical influence that, it requires aliens. Uh, nah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't buy into that. Um, is it possible? Cannot say it's impossible, right? Do you, do you know um, Bob Lazar? I've heard the name, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Bob Lazar claimed to have worked at S4, which is Area 51. Right. And... He says that we have multiple different UFOs that he worked on. Well, he only worked on one, but he saw, you know, multiple ones. Um, he said for some reason he wanted to say that they were found in an archaeological dig. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I haven't I haven't heard this. This is news to me, so I'm yeah, intrigued. He, Bob Lazar is pretty pretty interesting yeah. guy because he what happened was he had said that he worked at Los Alamos, mm -hmm. and, and when he came out, and I think it was, I want to say the late 80s when, yes. when he came out, um, mm -hmm. said he worked at Los Alamos. So this guy, Gary, not Gary Webb, that's another guy that we'll get into on the Crassy Knoll eventually. Um, <laughs> but th there was, I forget, the George Knapp maybe mm -hmm. was the mm -hmm. investigative reporter. Yeah. He tracks all of this stuff down, and he finds a, an old phone book because there were evidently no employee records of Bob Lazar ever working at um, Los Alamos. So he finds an old like phone book for the lab, and right there listed, listed is a Robert Lazar. Huh. Yeah. And according to him, the UFOs that we have there is an element 115 which is it's a heavy element and he was he said this in the 80s and we did not find um element 115 i want to say until 2015 so i mean that's i mean if he's if yeah. he was lying about it back then he's he's got a good you know good little <laughs> prediction but he said that this element was heavy and it was not from Earth. We had to actually make it. It was made in a Russian lab and he was actually a consultant on it. Mm -hmm. But he said that there was a center console that had this element 115 and it was made into these cylinders and they were all compressed down and then shaved to a certain geometric triangle. And <laughs> somehow through this 
in this middle console, it was able to manipulate gravity. So the ships themselves do not move. The ships are fairly, they're just stationary. They lift up and down, mm-hmm. but they manipulate the gravitational field around them to move space and time around the ship rather than the ship moving through space and time. So, Which is yeah. super interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's not entirely unlike I, the concept of the warp drive from Star Trek, right? I know, I know like, Star <laughs> Trek calls, like, everything. Like, Futurama calls everything. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm I'm highly skeptical of, of folks like Bob Lazar, and this is with all due respect. What's the best way to divulge a secret yeah like uh disinformation you tell people this is secret you cannot tell anybody yeah so you get people thinking that this is and so you know we 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 can't even keep national security secrets at the federal level right (laughs) How, how many times a day is some officials, you know, giving an interview to some newspaper or reporter or magazine under the, you know, condition of anonymity because they're not supposed to be talking yeah. about, it, right? It's like this is this is the same, you know, one of the same reasons um, or, or arguments that I'll give with uh, moon landing conspiracy theorists, and I'll say, you know, okay. So you have all of these people who worked for NASA and worked for all of the people who subcontracted with NASA for the moon landings. And even if you kept most of them in the dark, right, even if you didn't tell everybody we're not landing on the moon, we're just building this show and we're shooting it in, you know, uh, Hollywood or in New Mexico or wherever Stanley Kubrick was supposed Stanley to. Stanley Kubrick, have, yeah. Uh, videos. Um, there would have had to have been enough people at the top who knew about this, mm. who later in life would have come out just because for whatever, for the fame or for, you know, whatever, would have come out and said, hey, guys, this has been a lie. We faked this. But at the same time, don't you, you think keep that a maybe... keep that big, right? But don't you think at the same time, maybe if, like, so if they were the only ones coming out and saying, oh, we never went, they would people would be like, oh, you're crazy, you're crazy, of course we went. Ah, now that's a good question. See, now that's a good question. Well, okay, so as far as I'm concerned, there's only like two possibilities for aliens. Either there are intelligent aliens, or wait, well, I guess three. There are intelligent aliens, and they exist. There are intelligent aliens, they exist, and they work with people within the government or black operations, stuff like that. Or there aren't any. Like there can, I feel like there can only be like those three. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my personal thought is, well, well. Let me let me finish this one thought and then I'll address that. So, the the reason I'm skeptical of Bob Lazar or any claims similar to that is Los Alamos and other government labs you know, throughout the course of a few years have thousands of people come and go, right? Researchers, postdoctoral people, um, full-time researchers and and engineers, technicians. So if there was a discovery of some previously unknown element, right, whatever it was, 115 or whatever, um, number one, most 
nearly all of the elements at that level on the periodic table are highly unstable. Yeah, right? that's it only lasts like a few fractions of a second. Only a few fractions of a second, right? Yeah. So um, to have that many people who would have had to have been involved to verify that it was indeed 115, you're talking about teams and teams of chemists and physicists, mm. right, who are working with, with this stuff. And when you get that many people over that period of time, somebody would have spilled the beans, yeah. right? There would have been more people than just him to come out and say, you, you can't have thousands of people keep a secret. You just can't, right? Yeah. It's almost impossible. So that's one of the reasons why I'm highly skeptical of claims like that. So to the issue of aliens, um, I, I'll, I'll tell you, space wants to kill you. Right, space is a the harshest environment that we know of. Yeah, but is it conquerable? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, we conquered it long enough to get to the moon and back. Right, several times now, we've conquered it long enough to keep people in orbit around the Earth for months at a time. Um, are there physiological challenges? Are there engineering challenges? Yeah, sure, obviously, um, but we can't confuse a challenge with an impossibility right now. Some things are impossible. Sure. But for us as a, as a civilization um, and you think of, you know, our modern technical society, if you want to go back to the industrial age, right. When we really learned how to use machines, um, you know, we've only been doing this for what little under 300 years now. Mm. And, and, and you think about this, right? If you, th if you think about it in this context, you go back to the year, you know, right around 1900, right? Go back to the year 1900. Cars, not really a thing yet, right? I mean, people were starting to experiment with motorized vehicles, but not everybody had one. Everybody was still using the horse and buggy, right? Um, just a few years later, well, and, and, and not only have we been using the horse and buggy, we've been using the horse and buggy for millennia, right? Uh, you go back to biblical times, people are attaching wagons to donkeys, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we've been using this kind of technology, the, the horse or the donkey or whatever, the, the um, um, uh, pack animals, for our locomotion with our goods for millennia. And then you fast forward to 1900, that's still the dominant form of transportation. If you're a merchant traveling with your goods, you've packed it up on a wagon and you've attached it to a horse or a team of horses or whatever. And in just a few short years from there, you, we move from the uh, you know horse and buggy to the car just almost simultaneously. Now, of course, war precipitated this, but airplanes you know, come mm -hmm. into commercial use. Um, and then within less than 50 years of World War One being done, we're launching rockets, right? Yeah. So and Elon just sent us, you know, Elon yeah. just sent people to the and ISS. So look at, you know, how long it took for us to get to the industrial age. But then once what happened, once we got there and, you know, in less than a century, we went from literally the horse and buggy to landing people on the moon and bringing them back with rockets. 
a phenomenal amount of technological increase, scientific discovery. You know, it gave us the cell phone, the microwave, the transistor. So not only did the space race put us on the moon and back, it gave us our modern age, right? Our modern information age is a direct descendant of the space uh, age in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s on into the 70s. So, you know, with the rapid pace that we, we developed over the last century, I look at a lot of the things that people think about space and say, oh, you know, it'd be really hard to do that. And I'm like, yeah, it would be really hard. But does that mean impossible? No, not necessarily. So to, to, to think that, you know, if there's an alien race out there that even had a thousand year head start on us, who knows where they could be, right? As far yeah. as their ability to travel. Um, if you want to use classic rocket propellant, yeah, traveling between the stars takes a long time. So if you want another mind bendy thing. Hit me. Bend what, me. What if, what if we don't need classical rockets right yeah so what's 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 the like sci-fi goal right what's the standard for sci-fi teleportation yeah right i want to teleport we haven't teleported anything bigger than an electron but they're working on it right and 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 the teleportation that they're working on is far different than your Star Trek, right? Dematerializing you, transporting your atoms, and then they rematerialize you somewhere else. They're really uh, quantum teleporting information yeah. rather than an actual physical electron, but they are teleporting that information. So you encode information in the spin of an electron or in the magnetic field of an electron or whatever – and they are working, and they've had some mild success with transporting that information to another electron somewhere else. And then that other electron on the receiving end receives that information, and they can measure that it, in fact, did get that information. So when you want to think about things like that, and again, you give a civilization even just a thousand-year head start on us, who knows where they would be? So here's a question for you. Well, I guess this is kind of a two-parter. Um, with Elon basically dragging humanity into the future, yeah, and he basically is. <laughs> yeah, which I I love him. Um, I'm I'm a big fan. But with people like him, we have Bezos with Blue Horizon, all mm -hmm. these other the privatization of space, um, or yeah. Virgin Galactic stuff like that. Right. Um, with that kind of privatization of space exploration in combination with the the way technology advances exponentially as far as like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, stuff like that. Do you think that we're kind of on the cusp of another age of space? Honestly, I do. I, I, do I, really I, do. I think, honestly, I think in the next decade or two, we will have space flight on a way that we will be able to go and vacation on the moon, Mars, whatever. I mean, we will certainly be on the way. If yeah. nothing else, we will be on the way. Yeah. Uh, so my fifth grade teacher loved to tell us that, uh, you know, when we would grow up and get married, we would be honeymooning on the moon, right? Yeah. Uh, that didn't quite happen yet. And, and some of us are scratching our heads, right? And we're like, but why didn't it happen? And it's a whole complex issue, right? Because it's, it's economics. Where do taxpayers want to spend their money? 
should space be privatized in the first place? There's pros. What do you think about that? So, uh, yeah, there's there's pros and cons. Um, largely, I'm for it. Yeah. Largely, I'm for it. Um, we love to think of space as the place where politics doesn't matter, right? We love to think that space is the, the, the ideal where humans can get along. We can all believe that we're doing this for the betterment of mankind um, as a, you know, a humanity as a whole as opposed to one nation or another nation or whatever. Unfortunately, that's, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Yeah. Aren't there already treaties involving space? There and stuff? are. There yeah. are treaties involving space. Um, but that doesn't mean that it that doesn't mean you can't put a militarized satellite up in space. Yeah, right? well, we just got the space force. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, with the militarization of a great number of satellites, space is peaceful right now, but it's 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 not quite, you know, the same hazard as your mutually assured destruction when we and Russia, you know, we're both pointing our nuclear yeah. arsenals at each other and we're ready to blow each other up. But it is tense, right? It has some tension there because we know what kind of satellites Russia has has had. Um, China is now getting and putting up um and you know, not all of the nations that have space programs now uh, have their interests aligned with our interests and the interests of our allies. So space, whether we want to believe it or not, space is political. Yeah. Um, but that being said, the more we privatize space, I think I see it becoming becoming less political. Corporations that would have the kind of financial backing um, uh, to actually have successful endeavors in space would require pretty vast amounts of, of money and therefore power. So when you have that much power, you can buy political influence. Um, and you can buy immunity from a lot of things too. So, you know, the, the more space is privatized, the more I think that if there's battle in space, it would be more economic uh, mm. between companies vying for resources or whatever, as opposed to actual militarization where, you know, a satellite is capable of blowing up a spaceship or something of that nature, right? Um, so in that sense, I am for it. Um, with the privatization of space would come more difficult regulation. So we do have treaties now um, with with uh, the international communities um, with certain space issues, but um, it would be really hard to enforce certain aspects of that and we're actually running into that and and i love elon musk and i love spacex they are really picking up the slack with yeah. the defunding of the uh space shuttle program right so between spacex boeing is now coming up with their own uh um capsule that's capable of carrying astronauts long ba so, yeah and so you know between those companies we really are reinvigorating not just America's presence in space, but humanity's presence in space. 
But on the flip side, Elon is incredibly ambitious and incredibly well-funded and has a lot of money of his own. So he can pretty much do what he wants. And so, for example, the Starlink uh, satellite initiative, uh, while well-intentioned, right? We want to give Internet access globally. We are, it's we still terrifying. Well, it is terrifying, but it's also uh, potentially posing a hazard for astronomers like me mm-hmm. because the sky is now going to be saturated with, with uh, satellites. And so when you're trying to take data, uh, doing the kind of uh, research that we do, if you have a small planet, right? Um, so, so for context, if you were on a distant star system and you were observing our solar system with uh, a telescope and you were trying to detect planets in our solar system, Jupiter would be the easiest planet to detect because it blocks out the most light of the sun. It's the biggest surface area. So when it would pass in front of the sun, it would block more light than, than any of the others. So you would see, like if you're measuring the brightness of a star over time, right, when a planet crosses in front of the star, you see that brightness dip. And then once the planet is done, the brightness goes back up. And Jupiter would block a larger amount of light than anything. Uh, it would block around 1% or so. The Earth, on the other hand, would block something around the range of about 0.01% of the, the light of the sun. So it would be incredibly difficult. We actually don't have the precision. If we had a sunlight, well, actually, I lied. We do have the precision to find Earth-like planets, but they have to be around a sun-like star or smaller. If you have a much larger star, which is really bright, you know, really big, um, then it becomes much more difficult to find Earth-like planets. But so the, the point that I'm driving at, when you're making these really, really precise types of measurements with within the the field of exoplanets. There's a lot of different things that can mimic your signals, and there's a lot of things that can get in your way. So the more satellites that are up there, the more they could potentially get in your field of view and wreak a little bit of havoc on your data. And exoplanet science is not the only type of science that uh, you know astronomers have actually written to Elon and written articles about um, asking for at least some measure of... Um, concern for the astronomy community uh, because these satellites could pose some problems for observations within certain types of fields. So, is there mm-hmm. also, and I don't know that this is true, but is there also a problem with astronomers here with all of the space debris? Like, I know as far as like Hubble and stuff, like that's out, you know, that's way out, Correct. but Correct. is there, because there is a ton of space There's debris. There's a lot, right? There is a lot. Um, it's, it, it, it is a concern. It's not huge. Okay. Right. So when I was at Ball State, I was, I got my uh, bachelor's and master's degrees from Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. And I did research, uh, there for four years, um, using the telescopes there. And then with the consortium that we were associated with out in Arizona, and within those four years, um, problems with our cameras, right? Um, actually, by the way, if you have one of these little ditties, right, and you can take really good pictures with your 
camera on your iPhone, this is a direct descendant of the astronomical community, by the way. Uh, the way your camera works on your iPhone mm. is identical to the uh, what we call the CCD cameras that came um, were... Uh, I actually don't know when they were invented, but they became popular with astronomers back in the mid to late 90s. Mm. Um, and uh, they were pixel-based, right? So when people talk about pixels, um, that's what we use. Uh, but it was astronomers that used them first, right? And then people adapted uh, the, the pixel idea into uh, the smartphone and, and different cameras. That's digital cool. cameras. So your your iPhone camera is actually a direct descendant of the astronomical community. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you know we we would have much more problems with with pixels, with the camera malfunctioning, with um, a, a phenomenon that we call cosmic rays. And cosmic rays are just stray um, uh, radiation from space that can interact in our atmosphere and cause a streak of light that can go across your, your image and things like that. We had a lot more problems with those than I ever recall with actual legitimate space debris mm. um, you know, flowing through our images. So there's what? What's the total number of satellites in the sky? It's well over 3,000 now, right? It's well over 3,000. Um, but when you spread all of those out at their given distances, right? Um, so not all satellites are the same distance, of course. Um, and so when you have all of these different satellites that are spread out the way they are, they're different layers, different altitudes, different orbits. Um, they're really quite far apart in the sky. When you're looking up at the night sky, you'll actually only see a few satellites at a time whenever you're looking up. Um, and so the chances that, that a satellite or a piece of space debris would actually flummox your, your measurements is quite small. The problem with the uh, Starlink satellites from Elon Musk is just their sheer numbers. We would be launching yeah. so many satellites that um, it, it would potentially start to cause problems. Um, so I, I don't – do either of you know what the number of Starlink satellites he's looking at launching? It's a lot. It? So I want to – he's – He's well over. A, I, he tweeted about it not long ago. I think he has over four hundred right now. Five hundred forty. Wow. Yeah, five forty, and he needs. And he wants twelve thousand. Twelve thousand. So I don't. The reason I don't know the official number of satellites is because not all governments, uh, you know, report all of yeah. the satellites that they launch. Um, but that would be at least in the realm of doubling the number of, of stuff that's up there. Right. Uh, which again, well-intentioned, right. We want to make sure that, that people have high quality access to the internet for sure. Um, I, 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 I think at this point in the developed world, people would not know what to do if the internet suddenly disappeared. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, most of our banking is done online. Our bank accounts are held online. And if it went away, it would be really tough to go to the bank and get all your money, right? Um, 
so we depend on the internet pretty pretty substantially um so i i can't fault elon for for the desire to make sure that we sustain the internet and everything that's come out of it right um but there are some things to consider with it and anytime you put stuff up there especially with that kind of magnitude of of numbers you're then restricting what else you can put up there right so anytime we put something up in space uh, any anything that any country launches in space that we learn about, right? We put in our database. It starts getting tracked from places like NORAD, and um, the military then also shares those uh, orbital elements with NASA or whoever SpaceX and whatever's launching uh, cargo into space, so that they know where potential hazards are, right? So they can be avoided. Um, and the more you put stuff up there, the more this kind of stuff has to be taken into account and it's expensive, right? To launch stuff into space. Yeah. Uh, it's around $10,000 per pound. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I would cost. Uh, it would be a, <laughs> it would be a lot. Um, do you know who, um, Robert Bigelow is? No. He... Um, Nick, pull him up. Robert Bigelow, he he worked with, I want to say NASA. He did some, uh, let's see. Well, he, he used to own Skinwalker Ranch, which is Big, a, like Bigelow a UFO hotspot. Yeah, he, you could, he does a thing where he is like a contractor that can send stuff to space for you, that kind of that okay. stuff. Okay. Um, that's another, but this is another one of these things. And he does another, like, based on poundage, and you can send, like, small stuff. Like, you can send a picture of yourself to space, right. stuff like that. But just talking about Elon reminded me of this guy. Yeah. Well, okay, so you guys are in Prestonsburg, right? Well, from Prestonsburg, We're, yeah. we're all from there, yeah. From there, okay. Are you guys still in Kentucky? Yeah. Okay. So, trivia, right? little piece of trivia. What's Kentucky's number one export economically? I actually don't know. That's, hmm. I have no idea. Hmm. Uh, would... I'm not going to look it up either. Yeah, don't yeah. cheat, right? Take, take yeah. a couple seconds. Is it space-related? It is. Hmm. Well, then I'm way off. Steel it is aerospace, and normally when you think Kentucky, what do you think? Either bourbon, horses, yeah. whatever, right? It is aerospace. So between the fact that we have the UPS hub here in Louisville, uh, the airport still also services, you know, FedEx and other shipping carriers, um, and then with the engineering departments at Moorhead, which has a strong satellite uh, community. Um, UK is is heavy in aerospace and their engineering, and U of L has the aerospace and rocket uh, degree. Um, we do research. We put satellites into space. We do airplane engineering, and uh, all of that yeah. combined in the aerospace umbrella. Economically, in terms of dollars, we export more aerospace than any other uh, commodity. Wow, Kentucky, yeah, yeah. 
you would you when you think aerospace, what do you think, right? California, Texas, Florida, yeah. you know, maybe Arizona or Colorado or something like that. And their 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 uh, total dollars that they have in aerospace is far more than we are. But per capita, we're the largest in the country. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, Moorhead has a really good space science program, uh, a really good master's degree in space science. Um, I think that's what they, Zach Talby went to. They build um, and work with people who build what are called CubeSats. And I'm not really familiar with, with, with what their functionality is, but I know they work a ton with them. And they actually put things that go into space and, and are functional. Uh, and and do science and communications and and whatnot. So uh, Moorhead is heavily invested uh, with with the satellite industry. Um, rocketry teams from U of L continually win national awards when they go to um, you know the national competition for those kinds of things. So uh, yeah, Kentucky exports aerospace. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I had no idea about that. Yeah. Not just horses and bluegrass, guys. <laughs> so what can you tell us about, you know, your current... I know you, you said that there was some stuff that you can't talk about, and that's fine. Yeah. But um, when will you be seeing results from that? Uh, yeah, they so, be published that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, here, here's how the test mission works, right? Here, here's the official pipeline. So, the test mission was built by NASA, and um, it was a joint mission between NASA and MIT, is the flagship university that um, helped build some of the components for it did a lot of the computer coding for it, built the initial data analysis pipeline for it. So the scientists at MIT and their colleagues that are in that main group are the people that get first crack at things, right? So when data comes back from the satellite, they're the first team that gets to look at the data and try and analyze it. But because the data, again, is taxpayer funded, it only stays in that proprietary status so long before they have to release everything that came back in one batch. So they're working furiously to try and get as much, uh, you know, out of the data as they can before it gets released to the rest of, of the community. Uh, but from there, it goes to different teams that do follow-up research. Um, and so that's uh, the team that I'm on at UofL. And so I did have a non-disclosure agreement that says, you know, until a paper is published, uh, you know, I can't tell you that this star has a star or a planet around it, or, you know, this star may have multiple planets around it. There are names of systems, and we know these things, but I can't tell you that. So then somebody doesn't go and try to scoop the, the team yeah. before the data becomes public. So um, the, these papers are actually being published furiously. So uh, I, I can't. What's a good resource to. To read these papers. Yeah, so uh, one of the best resources is what's called the Archive, but it's spelled A-R-X-I-V. A-R-X-I-V. And um, so the Archive uh, is a physics and... Uh, oh, yeah. 
it has uh, all, all branches of physics and mathematics included, but that first link under the physics where it says astrophysics, um, that's a repository where people can, uh, so wow. this is not a peer review journal, wow. but this is where people send their preprints to get it out to the scientific mm -hmm. community while it's in prep to be published in journals. And there's a few reasons to do this. Um, number one, if you're afraid, you know, if you're in high competition with another group and you're afraid you might get scooped, you can put it here first and oh, yeah. show that you actually did the paper first. The journal kind of drags its feet or if it gets stuck in the peer review process and things like that. And your paper might not be published officially before the scooping people did. You can go back here and prove that, you know, well, we had our data first, our paper was written first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So under the headings, there's, you know, all the different um, uh, categories, but the, um, uh, the the main papers that would come out of tests, and I mean, I can send you guys a link uh, here in a little bit when we're done here with some actual papers that have been published. Um, but the papers with tests would usually fall under either the earth and planetary astrophysics or the solar and stellar astrophysics. Um, Nick, search Zeta Reticula on here real quick. Just, I'm just curious. You have to spell that for me. Uh, Z E T A E, <laughs> or um, X A D A, or I don't know. Zeta Reticula. Do you know how to spell that? Hang on. No, it's Z. Uh, Z would, would, would it be Z E T A Zeta? Yeah. Is it like the Z Greek letter? Re. I think that's a galaxy. It's a binary star system. Let me let me Google this real quick. Z E T A R E T I C U L I. Yeah, I'm assuming it's two different words, right? Yeah. High precision abundances of elements and solar types. This is where. Bob Lazar said the aliens came from the, of the UFOs. Oh, okay, gotcha. But also, I'm pretty sure this is where Betty and Barney Hill, um, if you know about them, who were they were like the first alien abductees in the United States. Okay, this so, is where they yeah. said they they were taken. So forgot about that. So Zeta Reticuli is a star in the um, Reticulum constellation. So. Um, Star designations, right? Um, stars can have several different names, and we have different nomenclatures for them. Um, you know, some stars have a proper name, like Polaris, the North yeah. Star, or Vega. Um, but there's also a nomenclature that's standard for constellations. And we basically say, okay, the brightest star in that constellation gets the designation Alpha, then the next brightest gets beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, you know, so on. So uh, that particular star would be what? Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta. So it would be the sixth brightest star in the uh, reticulum constellation. Hmm. Um, cool. So Bob Lazar claims that there's a planet there that the aliens are from, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I won't do it right now. I won't take the time to do it right now. But what I'll do is when we're done here, I'll look at that and actually see if okay. we have any evidence of a planet around that star. And that, like the habitable zone of... Right. And, wow. 
I, re- I remember I remember when I was a kid, I was watching a documentary, right? Because a lot of people talk about the dolphins too, right? Have you guys heard about this? Um, in Africa? That Well, the dolphins in general are aliens uh, watching over the earth. Have you heard oh, this? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have actually. So I remember watching a documentary when I was a kid. And the Dogon somebody, tribe. somebody was claiming that they were from the star Sirius. Yeah. Right, uh, the the bright star in Orion's hunting dog. Because Sirius is um, our stars, like they pull on each other or something. Correct. The, well, so Sirius um, has a binary component. To yeah, it. Uh, it has a white dwarf companion, which is the burnt out core of a sun-like star. So it is technically a binary, um, but it's a really bright hot star. Right, it is a super bright hot star. Um, but to my knowledge, right. And and I remember watching this documentary when I was a kid, right. When we were starting to find these planets, right. So people could say whatever they want, but to my not, like if we'd found a planet around Sirius, that would be big news. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure we haven't found one. Um, and Sirius is close enough that if there was one there, we would have a really good chance of detecting it. It would have to be in a really weird orbit for us not to be able to tell that it was there. So I'm reasonably confident that the dolphins are not aliens from a planet orbit. <laughs> what do you think about um, stuff like SETI and these other like sending signals out? Did you see yeah. that there was there was we were ge- we're getting a signal every like 16 days from a certain star system? I haven't heard about this. Yeah, I, Nick, I think I sent that in the Discord. How how long has that been going on? Do you know? Um, hang on, let me see if I can find this. And I will. I re- think I remember sending it because I was like, twenty twenty is just now starting to get weird. Yeah. Uh, so so you know, just <laughs> I wish I had more time to keep up with this kind of stuff, but my teaching schedule is just insane right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I'd be interested to, I mean, cause I, I remember hearing about some of the different signals we've been getting, but I just never yeah, did have time to look into them as deeply as I would have liked. Every 157 so, days. Every 157 days. So, um, right. You know, just to let you guys, you know, give you a little bit of background here. The reason that those kinds of signals are intriguing right is you know 50 60 years ago oh wait hang on look look here in february scientists revealed that an object 500 million light years away appeared to be transmitting signals every 16 days gotcha okay gotcha that's that's crazy (laughs) it is so the very first regular radio signal that we got that was evidence of what we now know as a pulsar, a, uh, a neutron star with a really heavy magnetic field. The researchers, uh, it was found sometime in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And the pulses were like, you know, fractions of a second. Yeah. And these radio pulses just kept coming in, just, I mean, just regularly. And the signal was actually termed LGM for little green men. Yeah. Right? Um, because at the time before that, uh, we didn't have any explanation for why a signal would be so regular, right? If it wasn't an intentional signal from an alien, 
uh, trying to get someone's attention, right? Um, when you're trying to get someone's attention, you don't do random things. You do something regular, right, in hopes that they'll 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 uh, notice the pattern. And so, um, I, I I don't know what that signal would be. Naturally, I'm sure there is a natural explanation for it, or at least people are are trying to find one. Um, but that is intriguing, right? Yeah. That is I, I mean, maybe it's because I, you know, I want there to be right. Brings eternal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you ask my thoughts on SETI and and you know that whole culture as a whole to go along with this. I'm for it, right? Yeah, I do. I, I'm at least for the monitoring and looking for signals. Whether or not we should be beaming them out is a different story. Unfortunately, we are yeah. just by the fact that we've been transmitting our TV and radio, you know, those signals are escaping into space. So if there are aliens and they've found our signals, they're watching, you know, reruns like of I Love Lucy right now, you know, yeah. um, or German Nazi propaganda from 1940, you know, three. So who knows what type of earth they're getting? Um, <laughs> So, you know, we are beaming these things out, um, but as far as the monitoring, I am for it, all right? And a lot of people look at SETI and say, well, it's a waste of taxpayer money, right? Because the chances of finding anything are so slim that, you know, we should really be devoting resources elsewhere and so on. And my response to that is, it's true that the chances are slim, scientifically, we have zero thinking or, or reason to think that we have been visited by aliens to this point. It, and if we have, they've done a really good job of covering their tracks, right? Well, they made it's, a deal with um, Eisenhower. Do <laughs> what? Yeah, that's that's a that's another one that <laughs> Eisenhower. Okay, so in the fifties, Eisenhower was at I forget the air base in California. Okay. And he had to make an emergency stop at a different airbase for like some dentistry work. And the mm. conspiracy is that it was actually a meeting with a group of aliens and we traded like they got some of our people, we got some of their people to work in like deep underground military bases, which will be another episode. Um but basically, they, the theory is, you know, we made this agreement, this treaty, and that is where you get the trilateral commission insignia. Okay. Okay. That was that was evidently like the patch on the aliens, like outfit. Okay. But you know, who knows? Kind, of, I mean, almost like the way that flat earthers will try to tell you that the. Uh, uh, um, is it the European Union symbol or whatever it is that that shows the flat Earth or whatever? Oh yeah, because uh, it's yeah, it's it's on oh, a polar. Uh, so the Earth is a donut, right? I'm, I'm right. glad. So I'm glad you brought that up because we we kind of we tweeted out this morning. Hey, we're gonna have a show tonight. It's gonna be out of this world. Give us a question. Some people picked up on the context clues and said. You know, my question is, is the earth round or is the earth flat? So I'm glad you led into that, and we would love to know your answer. 
All right. So I'll, I'll finish one thought and then I will get to that thought immediately after. So to, to formally close the, the session on the SETI question, I am for SETI and I'm for listening, right? At least I'm for listening because, again, the chances are so slim, but the payoff, if we do, if we do, the payoff would be unbelievable, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're literally talking about the biggest discovery in the history of the world, everything, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there's not a discovery that you could make that would be bigger than that. And so devoting a few million dollars a year to that project, totally worth it in my opinion. Um so yeah, I, I I'm for SETIs. All right, flat Earth. Uh, <laughs> so how much time you got, guys? Hey, um, man, as, as long, long as, as you yeah, as long as you so, want. Ah, man, I'd have to go back and and dig up my list of stuff. I used to have a bullet point of like point after point after point with this, but I'll, I'll start here. Okay, if anybody who is sympathetic to the flat Earth movement is listening i would challenge you on this <clears throat> nobody doubts that the uh equator would have to be smaller than the 30th south parallel on a flat earth right so if i'm looking at latitude and longitude as i go from the middle of the earth if i'm on a flat earth uh, uh, coordinate system I go from the North Pole down to the South Pole, or I'm sorry, from the North Pole to the equator, I've gone 90 degrees, right? On a globe, right? So I start at the North Pole, go down to the equator, and then go down to the 30th parallel on the South. That parallel around the globe would have to be smaller than the 30th parallel on a flat Earth. The major argument that a lot of people make is, well, I can't actually go to the South Pole because the governments won't let me, right? They can't, won't actually let me reach the ice wall. <laughs> you don't have to go to the ice wall. Just go down to the 30th parallel south, 30 degrees south latitude, and fly all around, fly one lap around that 30th parallel, and then fly around the equator and compare the two. And if you get a larger odometer reading on the equator, then you cannot be on a flat Earth. And this is a direct test. This is a direct applicable test that does not rely on, you know, uh, perspective or some giant machine in the sky that keeps the stars rotating in order. Uh, it doesn't rely on any external thing. You can get in an airplane with a working odometer. And, and what, what I would encourage is this. Take two sets of people, maybe about seven or eight people on the airplane, about three or four flat earthers, three or four globe sympathetics, and have them trade cell phones and the pilots be one of each. And so they all can compare their, you know, odometers, your, your, you know, your iPhone is connected to GPS. And if there's any flat earthers who use their health app to track their steps, 
I'm sorry, but you're communicating with a satellite, okay? Uh, <laughs> you are, right? So as long as everybody in that airplane would agree that a mile is a mile and that everybody's phones and the odometers on the plane are working properly, then there would be no controversy over, well, we measured this distance, but we yeah. measured this distance. Everybody's in the same plane. Everybody's reading the same instruments. You fly around the equator. And you get an odometer reading for what the equator and both globe uh, people and the flat earth people believe that the equator is the same distance. It's when you get south of the equator that the flat earth uh, lines of longitude would get larger and on the globe they get smaller again, right? So you just compare those two uh, distances around those two parallels. You don't have to go down to, you know, the South Pole. You don't have to do it. You can just go a little bit south of the equator, and if your distances start to get smaller again, you're on a globe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of other things. Um, well, what about hollow Earth? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'll tell, I'll tell you what, though. And, and this is the beautiful thing about pseudoscience, right? This is the beautiful thing about pseudoscience. You can't really disprove it. Yeah, right? you can't. So, so, I mean, I, yeah. Elon. I think Elon is trying to with boring. Yeah, but, if, if you were to you know hollow out and make the tunnels that Elon wants, then it would be harder for the the the, the hollow Earth people. But you could always still make the argument that the hollowness is below Elon's tunnels, right? Yeah, that's true. Well, so, Admiral Bird. <laughs> I mean, so you know, but. So in that respect, I almost have more respect for the hollow earth people than I do the flat earth people simply because their argument is so internally consistent, even if patently absurd, that I can't disprove it, right? Whereas with the globe versus flat, I have a test yeah. that we can do right now. We can yeah. get in an airplane and we can fly around, you know, due east um, or due west uh, around um, the equator and different uh, lines of latitude and directly measure those those uh, distances. Um, one of the other direct lines of, of reasoning for a flat earth, uh, if, if you want to do a side-by-side, -side, right, look up what Orion looks like from the northern hemisphere and then what Orion looks like from the southern hemisphere. Right. So in the northern hemisphere, Orion is more or less upright when he's highest in the sky. Right. So now Google Orion from Chile. Let's see, there should be, uh, hopefully, some um, images of Orion, and he should be upside down. Um, I think on that, um, Nick, if you go back to that first one, I think that there was a side-by-side, side, a second. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah there is. Sure, sure enough. So if, if, you, if you dig hard enough, um, you can actually find, you know, legitimate, not just artists, illustrations but you can find actual astrophotographs that people have taken and orion is upside down right mm -hmm. and on a flat earth that just wouldn't happen 
on a flat earth that just wouldn't happen because no matter where I'm looking, I'm still looking up at the same dome, right? (laughs) And so I wouldn't see things upside down in the Northern hemisphere uh, compared to the Southern hemisphere if I didn't have to change my perspective, right? So in one case in the Northern hemisphere, my head is looking up this way. And in the Southern hemisphere case, my head is naturally looking this way. And so I'm, you know, essentially uh, oriented um, in a different direction with my head compared to the the stars. So when you cross the equator, the uh, stars that are still visible from both regions are upside down in the uh, Southern hemisphere compared to the Northern hemisphere. And so you wouldn't get that perspective on a flat earth, nor would you get the uh, fact that the um, North star is not visible below the equator, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. If I'm on a flat disc and the North pole is in the center and the North stars up here, I would still be able to see it from the edge of that disc. It wouldn't matter where I was. I'd still be able to see the North star. But the North Star is on the horizon at the equator. It literally just sits right on the northern horizon at the equator. And it's because the North Star is up here. And if I'm on a globe sitting on the equator and I'm looking up this way, then the North Pole is the uh, cutoff of my visible area. And so, um, you know, when, when you you don't have to do a lot of explicit scientific arguments. Yeah. Um, you can literally just get an airplane and go to the Southern hemisphere. You can, you know, uh, you don't have to appeal to uh, really complex reasoning to, to think through the whole flat earth thing. So uh, why do you think flat earth has become such a big thing again? Oh man, that's a really good question. I, because I, yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand like where it came from because it is everywhere. It 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 has resurged with a vengeance. Yeah. Right? Um, I I don't know if it's an accident that things like flat Earth, anti vaccinations, and you know other anti science or slash pseudo scientific things have come uh, pretty popular. So basically, I, you're saying it's a psyop. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. And and so I I think that it's because it's almost like we worked too hard, right? So when when people are in, you know, when we were in school, right? Elementary school, middle school, and especially in high school, we were taught certain facts, right? But then, once we got to a point in our science classes, what was the main trope? Here's what we know, but question everything, right? And I think that what we have failed to do in our science classes, particularly in the 6th through 12th levels, is tell people or, or teach people that not all opinions are equal. And when you have a scientific idea what makes an idea scientific in the first place and why the collective uh, opinion of an entire field should carry weight. 
right? So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say just because all scientists agree on something does not mean they're correct, right? We have had instances where fields have been overthrown and all of the experts turned out to be wrong. Um, there was a famous physicist back in uh, right around 1900 who thought physics was done, right? Uh, he thought, well, we've got Newton with classical mechanics. We've got electricity and magnetism with James Clerk Maxwell. We've got thermodynamics. Uh, we know everything there is to know. Now it's all just applying it. And then Einstein with relativity and quantum mechanics came along and, you know, blew all that out of the water. And now we don't know anything. Um, so I, I, I wonder if we've emphasized the idea that revolutions are possible in science to the point where people don't trust scientists, mm. right? Because they say, well, science is always changing, and scientists are always changing their minds, right? Yesterday, I can't eat bacon grease, and now I should eat you know, more of it than I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> and I, I, I never wanted cholesterol, and now I need certain types of cholesterol, and you know, this thing would help me lose weight, and now I need to do this thing. And science is always telling me these different things. And it's true, right? Science is malleable. That's how it works. Um, I think that we're seeing this in hyper drive right now, especially with the coronavirus, right? Oh, with yeah. COVID-19. Um, you know, I, I see people posting all the time about, you know, well, I'm supposed to wear a mask. I don't have to wear a mask. You know, I can be around people less than six feet, but I'm still supposed to socially distance. What am I supposed to do? And this virus right? I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a biologist. So I'm, I'm not going to try to trample on their turf be, and, and, and misspeak. But what I will say is this, the virus was what it was called. It was called the novel virus, right? It was a novel virus. And what that means is we knew not much about it at all. And so when you have a virus that you don't know anything about, your first inclination, and especially once we realized how contagious it was, how easily it did spread, your first reaction is, you know, uh, what we really do think will work. Okay, social distancing, um, you know, some of the other measures that were taken, um, get ventilators, and we're going to try these drugs, and we're going to try these drugs, and... So people were just being inundated with all this different stuff, right? I need to do this, but I also need to do this, and I shouldn't do this. Then three weeks later, they're telling me to not to do the thing that they originally told me to do. And it was just science and hyperdrive, right? It was just science and hyperdrive where as scientists and doctors were learning more about the virus, they would make more recommendations. Yeah. And yeah. some of those recommendations went against what they originally recommended. And, and so when, when people that I would interact with on social media or, or whatnot, um, you know, would, would bring those things up, I would be like, you know, let's calm down. It's because we have new data, right? It's because we have new data that these new recommendations are coming out. And usually science is on the order of years to decades to centuries, right? Um, back in 2015, we just confirmed Einstein's last prediction with general relativity, right? With the whole gravitational wave. Sure wave. Sure wave. That, which was awesome. It was it was super awesome, but it was a yeah. hundred years in the making, right? Yeah. It took a hundred years for us to get the technology to do it. And so usually that's how science works, right? It's it's somebody in the past has this thing 
and we finally developed the technology to do it centuries later or years or decades or whatever. And here it's just with the virus, it's been weeks, you know, it's been weeks or days. And so it's just been science and hyperdrive. And I think that the whole phenomenon of flat earth or anti-vaccinations almost stems from people mistrusting science because it does change and they don't realize that that's its purpose. Yeah. Right. They don't, they, they want to know a fact and then they want that fact to be the fact. Um, and that's not how science works. (laughs) Um, and I think that people, you know, get a little bit, a little bit mistrustful of that. Right. If, if you've been taught in biology, all of these facts about the body or all of, these facts about different animals and then all of a sudden you realize real science is this fluid thing that changes with data with testing with trials with whatever um then you are hesitant to to trust what a scientist says when they say no actually you know some bacon grease is really not bad for you uh, in fact, there's some good cholesterol in there. And you're like, but my whole life I've been told it's bad. But then I looked at my grandma and she cooked in bacon grease for her whole life. And she's 95 and healthy as, you know, anybody else. So what do I do, right? Um, and, and most people don't understand statistics, right? Most people don't understand. Well, statistics are easy to manipulate, too. Incredibly oh, easy to manipulate. You know, uh, you, 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 you talk about anything that anybody wants to use a statistical argument for and a really good statistician or a mathematician can usually just flip that on its head and play the devil's advocate really quickly. Um, There are good statistical techniques and there are times and places that statistics should be trusted, um, but they are easily manipulated. That is for sure. So Uh, do you think another big problem is like the the politicization of science yes i i firmly do and and it was an accident right it's it's not like scientists willingly want to put themselves in the public sphere uh within politics and things um but with the way that our system is structured it is easy for some of these issues to be political and they certainly have become political I don't think there's a bigger political science issue, the you know coronavirus currently notwithstanding, yeah. than climate change, right? Yeah. With global warming, um, and and this is an issue that you know the the people who are convinced it's not happening, they are convinced it's mm-hmm. not happening, um, and which is insane. I think I think we are. And I'm going to say this, I'll, I'll fall on the sword, we're glassing over a not as frequently discussed conspiracy, but the world is getting dumber. I would actually agree with that. Yeah, idiocracy. We are living yes. in the movie and, and, Idiocracy. And, and the reason I say that is this, right? I, I would agree with that because for as smart as we are becoming, as a species, you know, with the invention of rockets, we've been to the moon, we have all these satellites, we can communicate all around the world instantly on our cell phones, mm-hmm. on our computers like we're doing right now. But when the internet 
went from what its original purpose was, the sharing of information, to the ability for people to use it for leisure and yeah. whatnot. Um, that's what humans want to do. Right? Posting their meals, yeah. their opinions. Post, we want to post cat videos. Yeah. We want to post kid, videos of our kids falling downstairs because it's cute. We want to post videos of, you know, whatever. And most of what's posted on the internet lacks, you know, the substantive um, value of information or um, uh, information sharing that its original intent was. And it's not necessarily a bad thing for people to engage in uh, mindless social media. Everybody needs a way to relax. Um, But... Because the internet is such a good place for turning our brains off, it is really easy to do so. And get lost in that. And and the smarter many of our individuals become, we're inventing AI, we're inventing quantum computing, we're inventing, you know, technologies that will save lives with medical, you know, advances. So as a species, we're getting smarter in a lot of ways, but I think the average person, because they are so inundated with this new information age, it can be hard to parse out what is good information and what is bad information. Mm -hmm. And bad information is often seductive, right? Well, I think Gucci Mane said it best, a man with no sauce (laughs) is lost. But that same man can get lost in the sauce. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I I think that that's great. Um, and and oh. so, well, you know, okay. For example, right? I I like to pick on Congress. Okay. Oh, me too. I I love to pick on Congress. I I cannot imagine five hundred and thirty-five people. Who, as a as individuals, right? Most of these people have advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. They have been trained to think in in some discipline, right? Yeah. And that's a really good thing. But you put five hundred and thirty-five of them together. I mean, we separate them into two groups. Okay, fine. But as a collective, how long does it take for something to get done in Congress? And how much bickering. And if you were to take the individual IQs of everybody in Congress who should be presumably pretty pretty good, right? You'd think a uh, average you to would above think. average. You would think average to above average IQ if you're going to be a legislature at the federal level for a 300 million population person country. But then you look at some of the things that come out of Congress and you're just like, guys, gals. What are you doing? It doesn't matter if you're right or left, right? It doesn't matter if you're central, if you're libertarian, whatever. You look at some of the things that as a collective comes out of Congress and you're scratching your head like, what in the world is going on in there? And I'm, I'm fully convinced that there has to be a threshold, right? You put a few smart people. Well, you give one smart person a problem. They will likely do a reasonable job of trying to solve and attack that problem. 
you give a small group of people a problem and they will usually come up with a really good solution. Three, four, five smart people, really good. Once you reach some threshold, I'm not sure where it is, but you know, when you get from one person to two people, your IQ climbs until you hit some plateau. And the more people you add after that, it just plummets, mm. right? It doesn't matter how collectively or how individually smart these people are. As a collective, it just goes downhill. And yeah, science has become politicized, I, I really truly believe, because it is easy to have become politicized due to some of the way that science is intertwined with our tax dollars. Yeah. Um, if, if you vehemently support, uh, you know, uh, uh, gas and, and the oil industry, you have a financial vested interest in uh, um, trying to uh, cast doubt on the science of climate change. If you have financial interest in uh, solar panel companies, you have a financial vested interest in showing and demonstrating uh, climate science. Um, and so when, when the politics and the dollars get intertwined with the science, I think it's really easy to accuse um, scientists and organizations of misconduct, of fraud, of deliberately manufacturing data sets, and so on. Um, and... I, I think the climate science phenomenon is slightly different from the anti-vaxxing community. I think I, I really believe the anti-vaxxing community is really the whole don't tread on me, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's the people who still have the sense of, for, for whatever reason, the, the sense of libertarianism has extended into their medical thinking of nobody's going to tell me what to do with my family. Yeah. And, and, and as an American, I fully get that sentiment because that's what we're taught, right? It's like we're independent thinkers. I can do in my home within reason what I want. I can think the way I want. I can teach my children the way I want. I can raise my children the way I want. And that's a hallmark of the American way, right? And so to a point, I get it. Um, but when that, co that kind of thinking, thinking – starts to step on other people and their well-being that's when we have to then have the discussion right um so but i i do think that the anti-vaxxing phenomenon is at least in part due to that mentality and and again i i fully get it right we're we're ingrained with that kind of um you know america uh <laughs> The time oh, I'm sorry. I thought this was America. <laughs> exactly. I think. Uh, I think of, I heard a quote. I actually heard it on Rogan. Come to come to think of it, but I think about this frequently, and I had to look it up because I didn't want to butcher it. But and it goes: Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Yeah. So, yeah. where are we? Yeah. 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 I, I would have to say that we're we're on the verge of 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 the we're bad the times, times in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, 
kind of bringing this whole thing full circle uh, in, in some ways, right? So are, are either of you familiar with the physicist from New York University, uh, Michio Kaku? No. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's Japanese. Um, Wait, but, uh, kind of long hair? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah, yep, yep, physicist. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so one of the things that he likes to think really deeply about, right, um, is what does what's in store for humanity, right? What's in store for humanity over the next century, two centuries, three centuries. And one of the points that he makes, and I think it's a well-made point, is in his view, humanity is really on a cusp, right? We have a lot of technology, and we have the chance with our technology to become a space-faring species. Within the next few decades, we really could put a sustainable habitat on the moon, potentially on Mars, maybe even beyond. Who knows? Uh, I'll come back to the thought that I just had when, when, when I'm done talking about this. Um, so, you know, we're on that cusp. But to the point with bad men create bad times or, or lazy men create bad times, um, however, the I think that we are on that cusp where we can go one or the other, right? Mm. If if we as a species collectively come together and say this is the future that we want, we want instead of China versus America, Russia versus China, Russia versus America, America versus Russia, etc., etc., etc. If instead of that, ah, weak men create hard times. Yeah. Yeah, I want um, Star Trek, not Mad Max. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and actually, Star Trek is one of the examples that he uses, right? So, so yeah. Michio talks about the potential for us to become a Star Trek type society, and in that society, race, religion, creed, uh, ethnicity, etc., does not matter, right? Yeah. You are free to practice whatever religion you want. You're free to practice whatever you know personal ideas you want. It's just that humanity as a collective has agreed that we're going to be one species instead of these separate things. And I, I hesitate and worry to think about what will happen to humanity if we don't go that route. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, and I know there's a lot of people probably in your listening audience that are probably going to disagree with me vehemently on that point, and, that, and that's okay. Um, but humans can only stay fractured for so long. We are already at the point where not many countries like us, or I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't put it that way. There are a select number of countries that don't like us. Uh, as Americans uh, or our allies. And there are a select number of countries that we don't like. And our political influence and our diplomatic efforts have thus far collectively stopped World War III. But if World War III were to be raged right now or in the near future, I think we would become a Mad Max-type world. I do too. 
right? I, I really do. I do too. And, and and people were worried about the virus, right? And mm-hmm. and social distancing and running out of toilet paper was almost a kind of mini apocalypse and all this kind of things. And But we really haven't seen anything like a true apocalypse, mm. right? And the fact that we're still able to do this podcast is evidence, yeah. of it, right? Uh, we're, we're truly not in any t- type of Mad Max type world. And, and one of the points that Michio makes is, you know, are we going to cross that threshold where as a species we say, doesn't matter your religion, it doesn't matter your creed, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your background, everybody is equally welcome at the human table. Or are we going to continue down this path of division, um, division of you know war, <coughs> conflict, uh, po- politicization, um, and and I severely worry about the future if we choose one of those paths over the other. Um, so my personal hope is that we do become a Star Trek society before it's too late. Um, will we? I don't know. I, I like to think so. I like to think that we humans are smart. Smart enough that we'll eventually recognize what we have to do to stop killing each other uh, for needless reasons. Um, and, and that's not to say that all war has been needless. Of, of course, there are times that war is necessary. Um, but I don't know that all wars have been necessary. Um, so, you know, if, if we don't shift our thinking from this us versus them kind of mentality, I do fear... Yeah where we as a species will end up in 100, 200 years. I agree with that. So I think it's kind of weird that, well, not really weird, but more interesting. But when you, if you go back and you read people like Sagan, and even like before Sagan, some old science fiction authors like Isaac Asimov and Bradbury and stuff like that. Right, right. It is humanity working together despite their races, despite their creeds, mm-hmm. religions, all that kind of stuff. So that is, and that's weird that that's been something that's been, you know, mentioned and talked about for so long and it's mm-hmm. coming right now to kind of like a point to like the head. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting, right? Cause, cause sci-fi is known for, you know, pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Or the technology, it w- but, there's a whole lot of social commentary mm-hmm. in a yeah. lot of science fiction and a lot of science fiction writers, particularly Asimov and Bradbury, as you, as you uh, mentioned, um, Oh shoot. Hang on. There's a, there, for some reason, his name just escaped me. Uh, I'm going to look him up. Um, I know I'm going to hit my head as soon as I see, see his name. That's the, I hate when that happens. It's the yeah. worst because it's like right there. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, You know, so authors like that had a deep insight into human nature itself, right? Not, they didn't just have this vision or multiple visions for what the future could look like. um, But they have some deep insight or deeper insight than the average person into the collective human mind, right? Into the collective mind of humanity. And 
a lot of science fiction deals when you actually start to read it and parse it out deals with you know subjects of morality ethics politics uh religion yeah. you know i mean all of these things that we consider important endeavors within our own individual experiences right um everybody has their own moral code everybody has their own ethical code everybody has their own sense of right and wrong and usually as a collective as a society a lot of those are aligned uh, even though we may have different religious ideas, different religious backgrounds, different faiths, um, a lot of the times those collective ideals of morality and ethics are more or less aligned. And that's, I think, what part of what allows society to function, right? Um, but those kinds of authors with their visions, you know, they did wrestle not just with... Um, what the technology will look like. How hard is it to build a habitat on Mars or what will it take to put people and keep people on the moon? But how the relationships will, will you know, develop and how can they be sustained properly? Um, you know, our psychological makeup as a species. I think these guys really had some deep insights. Uh, Asimov, and Clark particularly, if I had to yeah. name two, I like Asimov a lot. It, it would be toward the top. Yeah. Uh, oh, I said I was going to share a thought with you guys a while ago, and then I forgot to, to finish it. So we'll, we'll come back to this because this is this is terribly important. But uh, when I was talking about um, uh, places that humans could go in in spaceflight, so there has there's an idea. Right. Instead of putting people on the moon or on Mars, that we don't put people on the surface of Venus, but we actually build Cloud City in Venus. That'd be awesome. So, you know, the whole idea is, let's say I'm at a I'm at a party and I blow up a balloon and I tie off the balloon. If I just have air in that balloon, what does it do? Boy, if it just It'll without sink. helium. Yeah. And, but if I put helium in it, what does it do? If I put just the right mixture of helium and air in that balloon, what will it do? Just stay stationary. It'll float, right? Yeah. So the idea is I can build a blimp-like structure in the atmosphere of Venus of just the right density to keep it floating. It wouldn't sink down, and it wouldn't rise out, and you could literally put Star Wars-like Cloud City on Venus. Yeah, could you and you would be able to like mine whatever's below the. You you could I mean yeah if we could build the robots yeah. that could stand the things for long enough yeah you could build yeah. stuff. Um, I, I I just remembered that and and to me I think that that's a great idea. Uh, of course the technical challenges, um, you know the atmosphere the the kinds of clouds you'd be putting these things in you'd have to do a lot of uh, yeah. uh, uh, things to to make it work. But some some advantages, right, are that when Earth and Venus are aligned, Venus is much closer than Mars is. So getting things to and from Venus and sending signals to and from Venus mm. would would take less time. Um, it because Venus is inside our orbit, it crosses our orbit faster than Mars does. Yeah. And so those times where we would be aligned would be more frequent as well. So sending things to and from would be cheaper, would be more economical. Um, and, I mean, it would just be awesome to just say, yeah, I live in the clouds. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Live in the clouds on Venus. Seriously. 
yeah, I, I, I just remembered that, so I wanted to put that out there. That is really cool. But so yeah, we we can go back to the the society issue if you guys want. Um, I, I I think I've said about everything uh, I have to say on that. Unless you guys have any either follow up thoughts or questions or. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head that these yeah. authors they yeah. really did have they had this science fictiony ideas, but it was wrapped around actual human issues and that's probably why those stories are so good and why they are so inspiring and are still around today yeah uh another author one of one of the more recent authors even though he's late now um i would put up there would be michael Crichton as well oh yeah i like Crichton a lot um you know Especially I mean, with he did the Jurassic Park, so I'm biased. Exactly. But that's exactly where I was going. You know, even with the virus around, people talking yeah. about you know uh, the issues surrounding that kind of stuff, it's not a huge leap to then talk yeah. about you know can we reanimate things based on DNA and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, you look at some of the things that he wrote. Um, if if neither of you guys have read it, there, one of his books is called Timeline. And it was made into a movie with Paul Walker. Um, it was not the greatest of movies. Uh, it was okay, but the book is is much much better. Um, but there's a lot of social commentary in that book as well, as well as the ethical implications of what time travel mm. could uh, potentially pose. Um, I'm sorry, as a physicist, I have to tell you, our classic idea of time travel where we step into a machine, push a date in the past, and go back, not possible. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I hate to burn. I know, I know that people are like, come on, physicists, get on it, right? We've got to go back in time. Uh, it, 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 it's not going to happen. But um, I, should, I should say in the near future, right? Somebody may, may discover a loophole that we're not aware of. I, I, I never like to say never, right? Because... At one point in time, four or five hundred years ago, if you would have told people, yeah, there'll be a day when I can have some device that I can talk to somebody on the other side of the globe. And Isaac yeah, Newton would they think crazy. Right? We're going to bring it with the stake now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, ne- never say never, but at least with, with physics as we know it today, time travel is not going to happen like that. Uh-huh. So, uh, I know. I tell you, I'd, I'd go three or four years into the future and just, you know, take note of the stock market. <laughs> you know. And, hey, are you into Bitcoin? I, you know, I, I missed the boat on that one. No, you did not. I missed the boat. <laughs> I Listen, okay. The last Bitcoin will not be mine until 2140. <laughs> this is super early on. I'm telling you, man. This is super Oh, God. Well, okay, true. But, but I missed... <laughs> I missed the boat on the bubble, right? I don't think so, man. (laughs) JP Morgan, JP Morgan just came out and said that it's a great, it's the fact that it didn't drop like the stock market did during the coronavirus shows its ability to hold value during a crisis. And it's not correlated to the stock market. I'm telling you, man, it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars into the year. Oh, that's a bold one prediction. Coin? Bold prediction. One coin will be a hundred thousand. Well, what, what, what's it at now? It's it's several thousand dollars per coin. Ninety. Right? Um, I don't know. Hang on, let me check. Uh, 
9439. Yeah. Well, I'm sh- I'm showing 94. This is 92. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I don't think you've missed it at all. 100,000. It's 9, June. I'm telling you, man. Just I'm telling you, J.P. Well, Morgan, Big Money, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, I'll, I'll Jamal Poppins. They, they're, all, they're all saying it, man. I'll, I'll tell you something funny, right? So um, when I was in Indiana, I knew a kid who was a few years younger than me, but far smarter than me with computers, right? This, this guy is a computer whiz. He's got a PhD in chemical engineering now from Purdue University. Get uh, that guy. <laughs> but we lived in Indiana together, right? Or, uh, in, in Muncie together before he went off to Purdue. And um, when he was in high school, I was in college. And we were at Applebee's one night with a group of friends. And he just starts talking about Bitcoin, right? right? And I'd never even heard of it. So he starts talking about how awesome it is and how he's got his computer. And this was in like 2008 or nine, right? Yeah, like when it first. Years ago, I like think when it came out, yeah, right? Yeah. And so he's talking about, yeah, my computer's at home. It's running code. It's solving these problems. I'm mining these Bitcoins. So a couple of years ago, when I you know, kind of started uh, to, to dig back into it, and I looked at what it was worth. And it was you know three or 4,000 per Bitcoin yeah. a few years ago. I called him up and I was like, Hey man, do you still have that computer? And he was like, dude, like a couple of months after I was talking about it with you guys, that computer crashed and I just didn't pick mining it back up. Uh, and he had, he had like three or four Bitcoin uh, on that yeah. machine before it crashed. Yeah. And so he was just like, Oh golly. Yeah. I'm hey, seriously, man. Okay. Think about it like this. You you think that, and I am of the opinion that space travel in the near future will be a thing. Uh, yes, I really do. Okay, I, so there will be a digital currency that will be used. There, I mean, they're not going to be doing like shuttle flights of cash from yeah, Earth. I mean, because you know the the whole idea of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, right? Like I said earlier, we're really not that far from the internet controlling your bank. Yes. Right? And and when you think of things like, you know, okay, PayPal, Cash App, those kinds of things where you I can, can just buy transfer Bitcoin on Bitcoin. Cash App. I mean, I literally do not have to hold a piece of physical money mm-hmm. Ever. the rest of my yeah. life. Yeah. Really. I mean, yeah. There may be places that I might have to spend cash, but they're not places that I would have to go to exist. Yeah. Right? There, There's not a place in the United States that I'm aware of that provides shelter, unless it's illegal under the table or whatever, where they demand cash. Yeah. Right? Uh, especially if you own your own home and paying through a bank, you're not going to be either paying in cash or hardly even writing checks anymore. Right? It's all online through your bank digitally and and all these money transfers are digital so it's really not that far of a stretch to think about the transfer of our classical dollar into a more secure crypto uh, well, environment there's um, already real or whatever the other uh um blockchain type um you know uh systems are 
Well, there's already stuff like the USDC, which is a it's a stable coin. It's okay. always a dollar, always a dollar. And I forget the bank, but there was a bank that just got caught, not really caught, but they were found to be using that for money transfers because it was faster, it was more secure, mm. and it's it's stable. It's yeah. which is you know, and there's Ethereum. They're getting ready yeah, to start. Ethereum, that was the other one. I was uh, not at the real, but Ethereum. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. They, was trying they're to getting yeah. ready to start Ethereum 2.0, and it's going to allow. There's already like there is more Bitcoin on the Ethereum chain than there is on the the Lightning chain that was made for Bitcoin. Huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you can you can stake Ethereum and, and you become like your own sort of bank. Like when a credit card is swapped, that company gets X amount per transaction. You will get sure. that with Ethereum if you stake your money on the chain. Huh. Now, isn't that interesting? That, yeah. But my whole thing is they're not going to be transporting shuttles of cash into space. No. It will be a, it will be a decentralized currency that could be, because <laughs> I can, I can turn my Bitcoin into pounds, yen, shekels, whatever we're on. It can be converted into you know whatever currency need be. You should look into it, man. I'm just gonna pull out my abacus here and you know do my conversion <laughs> calculations. And... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, blockchain and and cryptocurrency are things that I'm not um, terribly familiar with. Like, I know some of the surface language. I know some of the, you know, uh, idea behind it. But really digging into the, um, um, you know, processes and, 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 and exactly how it works, I'm, I'm still uh, at the novice level, you yeah. know. Um, but it is fascinating stuff, that's for sure. And the more we move into a, you know, decentralized and highly technical society, I mean, it is how things are going to go. So, you know, um, I forget what author it was, but there was a sci-fi author. It might have even been Asimov. I Don't quote me on it. I'll, I, I'll have to look it up. But he predicted. Um mm -hmm that people would not use money but they would have a card that had all their money on it. yeah and then not long after that out came the credit card right mm. um lots and lots of sci-fi uh, uh people predicted technology similar to the ipad isn't right? that weird how that happens yeah i mean you know how many years had Star Trek been running where they're just typing on these, you know, touch screens Cell phones. and, and then in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, these touch screen technologies start to become commercial and you're like, man, some of these guys knew what they were talking about years ago, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the whole cryptocurrency thing, I, I really do see it as one of the avenues for uh, you know what currency and trade will look like um, as we move into uh, the proverbial space age. Yeah. Um, 
I agree. No offense to the Apollo missions and the fact that we have landed on the moon. I would argue that once we stopped going into space regularly, the International Space Station is a little bit misaptly named. It technically is in space, but I mean just barely, right? Yeah, it's so, it's like a satellite. Yeah, and so I, I really hesitate to say that we're in the space age yet, even yeah, though we're have stepping into it. Fixtures in space. We have things on on Mars. We have things on Venus. We've sent probes, you know, to the outer reaches of the solar system. A couple of our probes now are. Really on that border between our solar system and whatever's beyond that. So, you know, but we are not really a space-faring species as a whole yet. So I, I would still say that if if you want to say that we're in the space age, we're in the fledgling uh, era of the space age. Um, so, but yeah, I, mean, I, I do see cryptocurrency as playing a role in this uh, endeavor so yeah but hey man thanks for coming on um definitely we we would definitely want to have you back after you can after all this is done and you can talk about some of your findings stuff like that that'd be awesome so this summer uh i'll actually be starting to to dig into it uh somewhat um so maybe around like christmas break or something like that'd be awesome um, I'll have a lot more to tell you guys about. That'd it. be awesome. Absolutely. And 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 I'll, I'll come up with some more flat Earth riddles. <laughs> I, I do have one very important question. Yeah. You live in Louisville. Live in you Louisville. Travel to Prestonsburg often. I do so, so two, uh, during the semester. It's usually two days a week. Okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, the, and, 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 and the administration at Big Sandy has been great to work with me on this. Um, so I, I have my schedule set up where a, a good portion of my classes are online. And then, um, I have classes, uh, two days a week in person. So then I set up my schedule where the classes that I'm taking here at U of L are on the days that I'm not mm. traveling mm. to Prestonsburg. So it is three hours one way. So I'm yeah. in the park six hours those days that I do, uh-huh. but it is only two days a week, right? So when you think about it in those terms, it's like 12 hours of commuting time a week. That's really not that much more yeah. than a lot of people do, right? If you yeah. have a 45 to you know an hour commute one way, when you add it up throughout the whole week, that's 10 hours almost. So it's really not that much more, yeah. except when you're in the car for that 190 yeah. miles. That's a great point. But so, cats or cards? Oh man, I'm a card. Don't fan. say Hoosiers. I, well, so so I was a Hoosier fan when I grew oh. up, right? Well, because I so know, I get it. We, we we said we'd talk about this just a little bit. So I was born in Colorado. We oh. moved to Indiana when I was a little kid, and of course Bobby Knight and the IU Hoosiers were you know Damon Bailey, Calvert Cheney, all those guys loved those teams, um, and then. I did a year of graduate school at Alabama, so I am the biggest Roll Tide fan outside of that <laughs> state that you will find. Right? Except that. Uh, and and it, it was one of the years they won the national championship, right? It was 2011 and 12 uh, when they beat LSU 21 nothing <laughs> in the championship. 
and it took LSU into the fourth quarter to even cross the 50-yard line. Um, not that I have these things memorized or anything. Not but, you remember that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so now that I'm here at UofL, I, I'm a Cards fan, and I obligatorily have to uh, uh, um, not hate UK fans, but I have to hate them. <laughs> so, go Cards. Oh, no. <laughs> go Cards. Well, we'll work on that. <laughs> Well, guys, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, man.